0: Exodus chapter 26 tonight, maybe 27, we'll see, we'll see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, just love the songs we sang tonight, Lord, just you are glorious, God. We, we don't even know, we don't even know yet. We're going to be in your presence someday, it's all real, it's all true, it's actually going to happen And it's all going to be worth it. Everything we sacrifice or do, all the obedience, whatever. It's all worth it, Lord. We're going to be in your presence someday. And that's an awesome thought. And Lord, as we gather tonight, I know these guys, we could be doing a lot of different things on a Wednesday night. But here we are, and it's because we, we love you, Jesus. Our lives have been changed by you. And it's not really our desire to just... Study for study's sake, but we want to study Your Word to know You and ask You, God, to just let Your Word search our souls. And if there's any areas of disobedience in us, we want to get lined up with You. And we want to know Jesus better. So in some ways, we're thankful for just another Wednesday night, but on the other side of the coin, don't let it just be another Wednesday night. Lord, help us to just really hear Your voice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can you believe we get to do this, you guys? We get to do this. It's so good just for once in a while to think about. I heard a story this week. I'm already off track. I haven't even gone on the track, and I'm off track. But I heard a story this week of some believers in a a restricted country um, that were gathered together, underground church situation, and the visitor was there and asked if they had a Bible, and they locked the doors, and they closed the windows, and they went over to the brick fireplace and they wiggled out a brick and reached into behind there was a cavity and pulled out a tattered old Bible and they held it with joy and like quietly so the neighbors couldn't hear and they couldn't get arrested reading the Bible and I was like how blessed are we we can come pick one of five Bibles on our shelf or use our phone or iPhone or whatever and and gather together freely amen we're so blessed to get to do this it's an honor and it's a privilege but Anyways, got that off my chest. Let's go um, Exodus chapter 26 tonight. And we skipped last week. Um, I heard it was a great word. I I found out that Ryan taught John 5, and I taught John 5 on Sunday. I didn't know that until after second service. That was amazing. But um, I missed uh, last week in Exodus. Just kind of bring us up to speed, a reminder. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's going to end up being there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's come up to be in God's presence. He's going to come down the hill eventually, the mountain eventually, with the Ten Commandments. But also, he's receiving, and that's what we're studying right now, uh, plans for what's called the tabernacle, just to jog our memory a little bit. And the tabernacle, in essence, was a large, elaborate tent that was going to be set up right in the middle of the camp of the Jews... And it really was to remind them that God's presence was right there with them. And that kind of the apex of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark of the Covenant was something of God's Shekinah glory. And from that, you know, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was emanating from that. So it's a real significant thing. But we're in the section where he's getting the detailed plans. And, And what we've discovered is that as you go through these plans, um, all of it, everything that has to do with the tabernacle, the tent, uh, the components, the furnishings, the priestly order, and everything that went along with the tabernacle and the system, all of it points us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's one great big object lesson of Jesus and so we've just been discovering it, and there are those who pull out way more observations and analogies and parallels and types than I do, but we're just trying to get a, a, kind of the main thing as we go through this. Well, as we come to chapter 26 tonight, we're actually going to be looking at the tabernacle proper, like the actual tent of the tabernacle, how it was constructed And again, we're going to see how it all points to Jesus. But we're going to kind of go through this fairly quickly and then kind of pull the string and and we'll see some types and parallels. But let's kind of just look at the nuts and bolts of this thing, so to speak. Chapter 26, verse 1. It says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen in blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And you shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. I'll just pause there for a second. For the most of chapter 26, this first part, what we're going to be looking at is the various coverings of the tabernacle. And what we're going to discover is there's layers. There's an inner layer, a middle layer, and an outer layer. And verses 1 through 6 is dealing with that inner layer. So once they set up the frame, which we'll also talk about later, they would lay this inner covering On top of it, and I want you just to note, first of all, a couple of things. Notice what it's made out of. Fine twined linen and blue and purple scarlet yarns. So this fine, expensive, beautiful white linen with purple and blues and um, scarlet all worked into it, these wonderful colors, and intertwined in that um, is going to be these... um, Cherubim or angels it would be awesome to see i'm not sure how they were you know portrayed or whatever But there's angels in the tapestry and so think about that you guys They're going to lay this thing over the top of the tabernacle with all these beautiful colors and this linen And everywhere you look there'd be angels it would be like a little glimpse of heaven And in fact remember in hebrews chapter 8 The reason that moses has to keep this according to pattern is because it's patterned after the temple that's in heaven And so it's like almost being in heaven, you know, if you're in there. You're seeing all these beautiful colors and angels and everything else. Um, So let's keep moving. I'll come back to some of those uh, details in a second, but look at verse 2. Now the length of each of the curtains shall be 28 cubits. If you do your math, that's 42 feet. And the breadth of the curtain shall be six, or excuse me, four cubits, which is about six feet. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains uh, shall be coupled to one another. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the uttermost curtains of the first set, and likewise you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and the couple and couple, excuse me, the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single hole. We'll pause there. Um, it's really fun, if, if you think like I do anyway, to get these measurements, figure out the cubits, how many feet that is, and then do all the math. I end up drawing it out on a piece of paper, but reading it can be kind of confusing. Basically, here's the thing. There's 10 curtains that they sew together. They're, each one is 6 foot by 42 foot. And they make them into basically 10 curtains or five and five, ten put together, and that thing would drape over the top of the tabernacle, and it would cover the sides, the top, and the back. Now, if you do the math and put it all together, the tabernacle is 15 feet high, and so when you look at the measurements of this inner curtain, it actually comes about a foot short from the ground. It doesn't touch the ground, so it just kind of covers over the top, so fascinating. We'll keep going, um, but just kind of I'm not going to get into try to draw the picture for you. You'll have to just do your own little study on that, but just kind of get the, get the picture. Verse 7. Now we're going to look at the second or the, the, kind of the inner covering that will go on top of the linen covering. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for the tent, for the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, so that's 45 feet. And the breadth of each curtain shall be 4 cubits or 6 feet. The 11 curtains shall be the same size, and you shall couple five curtains um, by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain shall be double over for the front of the tent. And you should make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, the outermost of one set, 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, that is in the outermost of the second set. And you should make 50 clasps of bronze. Now notice, it's not gold anymore, now it's bronze. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together, that it may be a single hole. And part of the remains of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra curtains, excuse me, the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, uh, the cubit of the one side and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side, to cover it. And will pause there. So again, on your own time, you, as much as you want, check out the dimensions. I will mention this, that Now you have these six foot by 45 foot length curtains made out of goat skin. They're sewed together and then clasped together with these, you know, they've got little loops on the edge and then these bronze clasps that put them together creates one big humongous tent. By the way, the reason that they're broken up like that is so they can roll it up and carry it, you know, so it's portable. But all that to say is now the curtain goes all the way down to the ground, and it's covering the top, the sides, the front, and the back. Now look at verse 14. Verse 14 is the outer covering, and it gets one verse. It says this. And you shall make the tent, uh, for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins and a covering of goat skin on top. So you have tanned ram skin. And then it, mine says goat skin. I think there's like five different variations of what's said. Some says sea cow. I'm not sure what the purpose of that is, but um, that was for you, Mitch. Come on, bro. You missed it, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But what's the purpose of it? Yeah, gotcha. Anyway, it's not funny if you got to do it twice. It's not funny. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, so just kind of think real practically here for a second. You've got this tin, this and we haven't actually looked at the framework yet. That's next. But you've got these three layers of covering. And the inner layer is linen and beautiful and elaborate and delicate. And then you've got the second layer of goat skin, very Bedouin, by the way, very, um, you know, how the Bedouins in that area would have done it, the travelers. And then on top of that, you've got just the full-on, like, leather you know, just rough. And so clearly there's a practical side to this where you have the beauty on the inside, but you also have the weather-resistant skins on the outside. Just kind of keep that in mind for a second. Um, I promise we'll kind of make some applications on that, but just kind of be thinking about how that may look. Look at verse 15. Now from 15 through 30, now we're going to look at the, um, the actual construction of like the framework of the tabernacle. It says in verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits—that's uh, fifteen feet—shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. So, um, these frames will be like fifteen feet, and there'd be like a two-foot space, and then another fifteen-foot frame. Does that make sense? So it's almost like a like an H or like a two put together. What's the, what would you call that centerpiece? In construction terms hmm yeah like what, what Jack said yeah a bit of thin I agree but anyway so there's like these there's these uh, they're 15 feet high they're about two feet three inches wide and there's 20 of them per side and they'll just stack them together and it's going to create this frame it says um verse 17 thank you Jack I just couldn't hear you very well uh, there shall be two uh tenons or pegs in each frame uh, for fitting them together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames of the tabernacle 20 frames for the south side uh, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame uh, for its two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. Verse 20. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames. So just a repeat. Verse 21. And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, two bases under the next frame. And uh, for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. And they shall be separated beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. And it shall be with both of them. And they shall uh, be two corners. Verse 25. And it says, there shall be eight frames... Uh, with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, two bases under the other frame. So, again, it's kind of fun to go through that and look at how it all, when you start doing all the cubits and adding them together and kind of picturing it, it all fits perfectly. So each side would have these 20 frames. And then on the back side, it had six, but two more that were made for corners. So basically, you're going to have like a 35-foot, or excuse me, 45-foot long, 15-foot high, rectangle box with covers on it. How do you hold it all together? I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 26. You shall make bars of acacia wood um, for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars uh, for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle uh, rear westward. And the middle bar halfway up of the frame shall run from one end to the other and you shall over listen to this you shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold and holders of the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold verse 30 then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan uh, for for excuse me according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain good job i know that's a mouthful Here's the big takeaway that I just want to pause for a second before we move forward. Because you might say, well, I thought this whole thing spoke about Jesus. This just sounds like a lesson in construction. You know, what's the deal with all this? But here's, here's the main thing. When you look at the tabernacle proper, the, the, the frame, acacia wood covered in pure gold, and then the layers of linen and goat skin and leather and you look at the decor and the colors and the every it all basically what this whole thing speaks of listen is jesus and here's how it all basically points to this aspect of who jesus is um it's it's very typical of his incarnation the incarnation of jesus christ now the the word incarnation by the way is not found in your bible it's a doctrinal term basically, it literally means the in flesh of God. And this is what I mean by that. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is 100% man, but he's also 100% God at the very same time. Now, how does it picture this? Well, think about it. I mean, you could go on and on, and there's guys that draw the parallel better than I can. But just think about The curtain or that first inner layer itself, that linen, inner layer of linen and purple and blue and scarlet. Guys, all of those things, blue is typical in the Bible of heaven. Purple speaks of royalty. The scarlet speaks of the blood red, the sacrifice that Jesus would make. You see the angelic beings, gold, which speaks of deity you see all this symbolism inside and inside that's what it is but it's covered with what a real rough exterior you know goat skin and leather and what it speaks of is a the heavenly side of jesus the royalty the king of kings the gold the deity he's god it speaks of um heaven and and all of that so speaking of his divine nature And yet it's covered with the earthly part, the goat skin and the leather, which speaks of his humanity. Does that make sense? I'm just using a real simple picture. You could go into each detail if you'd like, and some guys do, but I just want to get this kind of broad stroke. And even the framework, you know, it's wood covered in gold, and we've looked at that with the ark and other pieces of furniture where the wood speaks of kind of the earthly side of things and the gold speaks of the heavenly side of things. So at the very least the picture that we can pull away from this is that the tabernacle is screaming forth the incarnation of God. It speaks of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen? Now, just a few words about the incarnation because here's the thing. That doctrine, the doctrine that God became a man, and by the way, it's not that God emptied himself of being God and then became a man. The idea is, and if you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it deals straight on with this doctrine, is that Jesus emptied himself not of his divinity but of his divine prerogatives and added to himself, if you would, humanity. And so even though it's a struggle in our brain that Jesus is 100% man but he's also 100% God, it is absolutely vital that we never budge on that doctrine. Here's the reason. From the beginning of the church age, this doctrine was always at the center of attack. In the times of Paul and the other apostles, you can already see it happening in the epistles where the culture around them, the philosophies of the world of the day, began to seep through the walls into the church and affect the way that they were thinking about Jesus. Now, here's the thing. In that day, they, the church was absolutely embracing the deity of Jesus. But the heresy, the false teaching that began to creep in was denying the humanity of Jesus. And that was all linked to, by the way, the Gnostic philosophies of the day, um, which kind of went off into two branches of Epicureanism and uh, Stoicism or being Stoics. And the uh, general very, very, very simplistic way of explaining it would be that everything spiritual is good and everything material is bad. And since Jesus was good, he's all spirit, but there's no way he could have been material because everything material is evil. Does that kind of make sense? So this heresy, and I, don't, I use that word on purpose because that's exactly what it was, was creeping into the church that Paul and the guys had to deal with and say, no, 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 no. Yes, of course Jesus was deity, but he absolutely was 100% man. Now, you fast forward 2,000 years to the day and age that we live in. The heresy that's affecting the church now is not denying his humanity. We embrace his humanity. I mean, reluctantly, the world around us will be like, okay, we'll concede the fact that Jesus was an actual historical person that walked the face of the earth. They reluctantly dragged their heels on on admitting to that. But then the idea of Jesus being God, oh, forget about that. See, it's flip-flopped. The heresy then was that Jesus is God, but he's not man. The heresy now is that Jesus was a man, but he's not God. And not to be combative or or argumentative, but this is the key issue when you're dealing with your Jehovah Witness friends or your Mormon friends. This is the key issue because in their doctrines, this is why they're not Christian doctrines by definition, because they deny at the core of their teachings the deity of Jesus Christ, and if. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and it's not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. He's 100% man, and he's 100% God. Amen? Well, I don't want to just split hairs over minor things like that. Listen, this is why it's not a minor thing. If you detract from one side or the other from the deity or the humanity of Christ, what you end up doing is stripping the cross of its meaning And its power, and that is exactly why Satan has cleverly, through false you know, intellectualism, tried to attack this doctrine. For God to do his redemptive plan for mankind, the Savior had to be one hundred percent God and has to be one hundred percent man. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin. He came through a virgin, Mary, a human being. But his father was Father God divine if Jesus wasn't divine what that means is God didn't suffer and die for us on the cross it means he created somebody to suffer and die for us and that completely cheapens what happened on the cross if he's God but he's not man then he can't fully relate to mankind and be an adequate an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Does that make sense? So it's absolutely imperative that he's 100% man, and it's absolutely imperative that he's 100% God, and so he is, and because he is, he can be the once and for all sacrifice on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity, and yet at the same time, it's Jesus who is God who's taking the punishment, the wrath from the Father. And, and that's, you know, that's a very like scratch-the-surface discussion of the incarnation. But are you guys tracking with me to the importance of this? And I bring it up because, A, these are things that we need to know about Bible doctrine. And they're not little debates. And we kind of need to know why we believe what we believe. So I got this real list, this quick little list here, and I'm not going to exhaust it. And again, we could go forever on this. But um, I want to just show you a few things that the New Testament states as the purpose for the incarnation number 1 is to reveal God to man. John 1:18 No man has seen the Father but Jesus declares God to us. Also to provide an example for living. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of how a human being was meant to live. To provide a sacrifice for sin Hebrews 1 or excuse me, 10, 1 through 10, you can read about how he is the perfect once and for all sacrifice. To destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. To enable him to be a merciful and high priest, Hebrews 5. Think about that for a second. The one who suffered for us and died for us on the cross fully participated in being a human being. The Bible says he was tempted in every single way that we are tempted, yet the difference is he never sinned. And the Bible goes on to de- declare because of that, he's a merciful high priest that can relate to us in our moments of struggle and of temptation. And this is the great part. This is what trips me out about that. Jesus navigated it perfectly. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. And so what he says is, I, I did it. I did it. I conquered it. And then I paid for your inability to do it. I understand what you're going through. So when you're being tempted or struggling Come to me for help. I love that he doesn't say, I did it. What's your problem? Get your act together. What's the matter with you? I love the fact that he says, I know how you feel. I know how difficult that is. Let me help you. Amen? And so, again, I mean, I, again, I feel like I'm just barely scratching the surface. But to me, I just as I see the, just the, the construction of the tabernacle, what it screams to me in all of its construction with the colors and the typology and and, and the various materials, it speaks of Jesus in his humanity but also in his deity. And uh, that's called the incarnation or the in-flesh of Jesus Christ. Well, look at verse 31. Come to a very important part of this tabernacle deal. You shall make a veil... Of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. There's those beautiful colors, very symbolic. Blue, heaven, purple, royalty, scarlet. Speaks of the blood sacrifice of Christ. Fine twined linen, white, purity. It shall be made with cherubim, angels, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from clasps Clasps, excuse me, and bring the ark of the testimony in within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side and the, of the tabernacle opposite of the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. So just pausing there for a minute. This veil, we've talked about it before. The tent, the tabernacle had two main compartments. The holy place is the first one, and the second one is called what? It is called what? The holy of holies. What separates them, what kind of separates those two chambers, was a really thick curtain, a veil. There's pillars set up. And this veil that was hung, and the only thing that was behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it and the mercy seat on top of that where God's presence would be. Here's the key word. Look at verse 33. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. That's the key word. Separation. That's, and we've talked about this, but that's what the whole purpose of that veil was communicating something very loud, very clear, that God's holy presence is behind this veil, and you're not allowed to go in there. And if you go in the, behind that veil improperly, you're going to die. And later as we get into the law, we'll see that, that that holy of holies was only accessed one time a year by one person, the high priest. And it was not without first shedding the blood of a goat for his own sins and then shedding the blood of a goat for the sins of the nation, peeling back the the curtain, stepping with trembling hands behind there to the presence of God, sprinkling the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice and being back there. It was an awesome thing. Do you guys understand that? So that veil was a protective, you know, just like God saying, stay out. This is... You do not come in here. Your regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill priest guys, they don't come in here. One guy does. And this is the beauty because if you turn or you just think about with me, Hebrews chapter 10, listen to what it says. This is verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us, the, that is the curtain, that is through his heart, Flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart and sure, full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now I jumped right into a very theologically deep you know, side of the pool there in Hebrews 10. But what he's admonishing us is that we can boldly enter into the presence of God. In contrast to the high priest who went trembling with no assurance, very little confidence into the presence of God, he's saying, oh, but see, now there's a new and living way that we get to go into, and namely, check this out, verse 20, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And so the author of Hebrews is drawing a parallel Between the veil and Jesus' body, now think with me, Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And Matthew chronicles for us that a few things happen, not the least of which is a several hundred yards away in the temple court where the temple was, the veil that was in the temple tore spontaneously, miraculously, from top to bottom and exposed the Ark of the Covenant to anybody who was in the temple right then. A spontaneous ripping of the curtain. Why? Because what was happening is as Jesus' physical body, his flesh was being torn apart, he was doing that so that he could rip down the separation between God and us. Amen? What was keeping us from the presence of God? Our sin. That's what was keeping us. He's righteous. We're not righteous. He's holy. We're not. Something had to be done for our sins. But all of those animal sacrifices, one after the other, after the other, after the other, Hebrews tells us, could not adequately deal with the sins of a human being, and deal with our conscience, but when Jesus died on that cross, he died as the perfect sacrifice, adequate, acceptable, once and for all, and then ripped, if you would, any separation down between us and the presence of God. And so what does the author of Hebrews say? Draw near with, he's contrasting. Confidence, full assurance, faith, we're sprinkled, we're clean. You know, I, I, I often put myself in the when I'm thinking about this in the sandals of that high priest, like how, I mean, it would have been awesome to be back there. But there's probably never a minute of just rest, like you're like on edge because you do the wrong thing. You're dead, right? But we can just come boldly. And that doesn't mean like in a cocky or like I'm so awesome kind of a way. No, it's it's a humble confidence that because of what Jesus did and I'm in Christ, I can come with full assurance that my sins are forgiven, I'm clean, there's no condemnation, he's not mad at me, there's not lingering stuff, I can just be in the presence of God, not one time a year or one time a month or one time a week, but anytime I choose, I can just go and be with God because of the new and living way who is Jesus. Amen? Let me think, what would be a good application for this? Go be with God. Go enjoy that. the access, the greatest, listen, the greatest ministry that any of the priests had was the the high priest. And the apex of his ministry was on one day a year, he just got to be in the presence of God. And the greatest ministry is we can do as priests, if you would, in the New Testament line of thinking. The greatest service we can do for God is not... Serving as a deacon at church, that's great. Not doing Sunday school, that's wonderful. Not preaching a sermon, that's great. The highest ministry that we can have is just to go be in the presence of God. Amen? You better amen or I'm going to reteach it. Okay. Okay, I want to just dip my big toe into, into chapter 27, but I'm looking at the clock. And, and it's okay if we don't finish it because it's, it's all this kind of a continued thought, so it's, it's not a bad thing to stop. First, let's finish chapter 26. He says in verse 36, You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make uh, for the screen five pillars of acacia, overlaid them with gold. Uh, their hooks shall be of gold, and they shall cast five basins of bronze for them. So again, this is like the entrance to the, the first chamber Um, of the holy place let's look at chapter 27 we'll just look at that first uh, furnishing if you want to call it that you might have a a little um, what's the word I'm looking for a little thing above this section where it says something like the bronze altar or something like that or the brazen altar anybody yes okay so that's what we're going to look at Um, I'll just kind of preload it with this if you are coming into the courtyard which we haven't talked about yet but we will next week Um, If you came into the courtyard of the tabernacle, which is basically this huge fenced-in area, for lack of a better word, the first thing you would be faced with would be the brazen altar. This would be the first thing you would see. It would be the focal point of coming into that that courtyard. And let's look at why. Verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad, altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits so basically this is a four foot and about five inch high square the square is seven feet five inches so it's about four and a half feet by about seven and a half feet around and it says in verse two you shall make horns that's interesting for it on its four corners these little protrusions little horns that would come off to the side and its horn shall be of one piece, and with it you shall overlay with bronze. Now note that, verse 3. You shall make posts for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all the utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating and a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the edge of the altar so that the, oops, so that the uh, net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Verse 7, the pole shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are uh, on the two sides of the altar, then it is carried, and you shall make it hollow with boards. Um, it shall be shown, to as i shown to you on the mountain, so you shall make it." Um, Bree, you want to throw that picture up there? This is something, uh, something like this is what it would look like. Uh, the bronze altar one. Let's do that one. So something like that. I don't know if you guys can see that very well. But the idea was it's square, has a grate in the middle. But then notice the four little horns that come off to the side. And we'll talk about those for a second. And again, there would be poles that would be for transporting that thing. That's how they would move it. So thank you, Bree. You can kill that. So here's the thing. This altar... This is different. Remember we talked about the altar of incense, that little square table that would be in the holy place. This is something far different from that. This is actually designed for animal sacrifice. And this is what would be used when a person would bring an offering or sacrifice to come and worship God. And they would bring their animal to that altar and the priest would kill the animal and put it on the altar and sacrifice it. And it's got kind of interesting, by the way, the horns, because um, Psalm 118, verse 27, you might jot it down, there's a little scripture that says this, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And there's some that think that when you would bring your offering, you would tie it to the horn of the altar, the priest would lay, or excuse me, the person who brought the sacrifice would lay their hand on the head of the goat or the lamb or the bull or whatever it was. And when you did that, you were, you were like symbolically transferring your sin to that animal. You lay your hand on that animal. It's receiving symbolically your sin. And while you're doing that, the priest pulls out the knife and goes, and cuts the throat of that animal and the warm blood drains out and the body quivers and it falls and it dies and then they start chopping it up depending on what kind of sacrifice it was and they put it up on the altar and it's a bloody mess but what was being communicated loud and clear that animal is dying in place of the person who brought it because the wages of sin is what death is the place of sacrifice the altar of sacrifice and guys, clearly that speaks to us of the cross. Amen? It speaks of what Jesus did on our behalf. As Jesus was, if you would, bound to the altar with cords, not of rope, but cords of love. Do you understand that when Jesus was on that cross, that it wasn't the, the nails holding him to that cross? Do you guys understand that? It wasn't the, the ropes holding him to the cross? Remember when they arrested Jesus and they're like, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. For you students, that's the Tetragrammaton. That's the name of God, Jehovah God. He basically said, I'm God. And they fell. The Bible says, and only John picks up on this little detail of the story. They fall on their rears, the soldiers, in awe. Something happened. And then they got up, and they're like, Jesus is like, who are you looking for? And in my mind, I always play it out like they're like, "Uh, Jesus, sir, please? You know, maybe humbled. And he puts his hands forward, if you would, and it says they bound him. Did they really? they really bind Jesus? He just said two words and knocked them on their keisters. Did they really get him? Did they really arrest him? Or was it more likely that Jesus voluntarily, willingly went with them? No, it wasn't cords, it wasn't nails holding him to the altar, if you would, the cross. It was his love for you and his love for me. Amen? That's what kept him on that cross. When they were mocking him and said, hey, if your God come off the cross, I'm so glad he didn't do that if Jesus would have said okay and came down then I'd be lost and so would you he stayed on that cross love held him to that cross it speaks of Jesus in every way it speaks of the cross in every way real quick and we'll end on this I wanted you to notice that it's made out of bronze bronze in Bible typology always speaks of judgment real quick story to illustrate that as we wrap up in Numbers chapter 21 there's this account um, of an event that happened kind of fresh to the children of Israel when they left Egypt and went through the Red Sea. And basically, it was this they were complaining, murmuring. We're tired of this food, we're tired of this manna, we're tired of all this stuff, and we're just tired. And God, in response to that, sent snakes. It says, fiery serpents. Numbers chapter. You guys remember this story? Anybody remember this story? Okay. If you have it, read it. It's a real quick thing Numbers chapter 21. God sends fiery snakes into the two and a half, three million people camped out, and it says it starts biting. People are dying. They're getting bit by poisonous snakes. They clearly connect the dots and say, Moses, sorry, uh, we sinned. Um, Please forgive us. Would you go to God and tell him we're sorry? Moses goes to God. God, the people are sorry. And God says to Moses, cool, here's what we're going to do. I'm summarizing the story clearly. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to mold out of bronze a snake. And I want you to stick it on a pole. And I want you to lift that pole up into the middle of the camp. Here's the thing. He didn't take the snake away, the snakes away, but he provided a way of escape if they got bit. So if a person got bit by a snake, here was the remedy. Look up to that snake that's on the pole, and they would be healed. I don't know about you, but you can almost hear the snickers when... Um, Moses, like, gives the plan. Like, what are you making? Oh, I'm going to make this bronze snake, so if you get bit, just look at it, you're good. Really? I wonder how many people bought that. I, I think they did. But does it make sense to look at a snake and be, or look at a, a bronze snake and suddenly the poison just stops working in your skin? Does that make any kind of scientific sense to you? No. What was being communicated? When you get bit by the, you know, the snake and the venom's in you and you're going to die, you're to look at faith with faith, to the, what God provided for your salvation. And if you do that, you'll be cured. wonder if anybody died trying to fix themselves. I'll just suck it out. I'll just suck the poison out. Bro, suck the poison out of my heel. No, you're going to die, bro. I'm not doing that. You know what I mean? Like, what if they just, I'll just do a tourniquet, I'll do, and then they die because all they had to do is look at faith with faith up to the pole and they would have been saved. And then we fast forward, right? You guys are connecting the dots. John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus said, Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The snake, the bronze snake on the pole, is a picture, a foreshadow of Jesus on the cross. And when we, who have been bitten by the snake of sin, and we all have, it's been said we're all SIN positive. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all destined to die and go to hell forever. We're not good people. We are, we are people that are sinners and rebellious sinners that doubt against a holy and righteous God that if he did not intervene, we are lost, and he made a provision. It's Jesus Christ who on that cross was being judged for our sin. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Amen? So the whole point, guys, of this whole thing is it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Jesus was judged for our sin. We've all been infected with the sin. We're all dying from that venom, if you would. But when we look with faith and trust to God's provision jesus then we're forgiven and we're set free amen that was the remedy and that is the remedy and i would say this too it's still the remedy even after the salvation application you know we still fail we still fall short i'm not saying we lose our salvation that's not what i'm saying but we still fail and we can lose fellowship with god what's the remedy look to the cross Look to the brass serpent. It's still the remedy. Oh, I I, I know I messed up, God. I'll fix myself. I'll do better next time. Nope, it's still the remedy. You look up to the cross and you just receive forgiveness again and then you end up bowing in worship to how good God is. It's never been about trying to fix yourself or heal yourself or whatever. It's always been about just by faith receiving what Jesus has done on your behalf. Amen? Thank God for the provision he's made through Jesus Christ. And so the tabernacle, again, all speaks of Jesus, all points to Jesus. I'm barely touching these things. You guys are doing the the math, connecting the dots. How beautiful is this, you guys? It's all coming together. Let's pray. Why don't we all stand together and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I know it was a lot of reading tonight. I know there's a lot of, like, details, and it's easy to get lost in those things. But Lord, we thank you that when it's all said and done, all of this is just pointing us back to you. We just marvel at you, Jesus. We marvel that you came. We marvel at who you are and what you've done. We're humbled by your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you for your provision. And Lord, among other things, I pray that tonight we would walk away with a greater appreciation of you, Jesus. A better understanding. And that, Lord, we would not just read about what happened to you, that we would go and take advantage of your finished work and go and be in the presence of God with full assurance because you've made a new and living way. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.